Welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you are a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, you are in the right place. I'm Russell Stratton. In this episode, I need to effing talk to our special guest and my co-host, Ken Cameron. Hi, Ken. Hi, Russell. Great to be here, Russell. (laughs) So glad to be here as your guest. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Ken Cameron is one of Canada's foremost minds with a resume that includes visual arts, arts administration, theatre corporate coaching, and now embodied psychedelic leadership. And Ken is working with a new program to help leaders gain a perspective through embodied psychedelic leadership. So, Ken, psychedelic leadership, I know this isn't some kind of hippie bullshit. Enlighten us. Uh, What is the groundbreaking new work you're doing and why should anyone keep effing listening to you for the next 20 minutes or so? Well, thanks, Russell. And first of all, if I can say, I'm a big fan of the podcast. And so it's my great (laughs) pleasure to be here sharing the stage with you and your co-host, of whom I'm also a big fan. But um, all that that joking and nonsense aside, I have been working in this field in the underground, in the psychedelic therapy space, in the underground for quite a long period of time. And just recently, just about six months ago, Alberta became the first jurisdiction in Canada to legalize the use of psychedelics in a therapeutic context. So this underground work that has been really transforming lives and helping people with PTSD and complex PTSD and past trauma to really be able to break through the limits that this trauma has set for themselves is now poised to really kind of go mainstream in the same way that the legalization of cannabis, which was, what was that, four or five years ago, really helped transform the landscape of another kind of healing. So it's it's at a really unique junction right now, a really unique juncture, junction right now. And But there's also more to be done because I found in some of this work when I've been an assistant to other registered therapists that they're often what happens when people break through these, these barriers that have been holding them back, whether that's something that's informed from trauma or, 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 or just something that's holding them back from their upbringing, they're not only able to lead happier and healthier lives uh, in terms of mental health, but their, their careers actually either um, move to a new level or they actually even can get like supercharged and move like to, and get 10 X, like as that expression goes, 10 times what they're, um, what they've been able to do previously. So I've become really interested in this, in this intersection between these two worlds. Okay, that's, that's fascinating because it's not a subject I know a great deal about. I mean, you've enlightened me on a couple of our recent road trips have filled me in on some of the details, which is why I wanted to um, to talk to you a little bit more about this because I thought it would be interesting for our listeners. Um, so I was sort of aware of the therapeutic side, particularly around PTSD. I, I listened to a recent podcast with Congressman Dan Crenshaw who was talking around how this had been used with you know uh, special operators with SEAL teams and people suffering from PTSD. PTSD, but I wasn't aware of how it had been used in a leadership sense. So you've touched upon that. Um, what led you to see the link between, okay, this works in a therapeutic way. How does it work for a, for a leader? So perhaps you could uh, sort of uh, flesh that out a bit for us. 
Well, I suppose there's two things, really, Russell. The first is my own personal experience. As I have been working through my own blocks with my own therapist, and as I've been engaging in um, some psychedelic therapy for some of my own my own issues, let's call it, let's call it what it is, my own issues that are holding me back. I've discovered that once I break through those issues or those barriers or those challenges, then I'm really able to become the leader that I always wanted to be. And I'm also able to see new directions for my work or being able to see what's really holding me back from embracing the direction that I've chosen to take, what might be holding me back, where I might be a bit more tentative in a way that really isn't allowing me to to kind of step into that space that I'm trying to carve out for myself. I've seen that manifest, not just for me, but for others. So I think that's the first thing, is that kind of lived experience. And now I could be continuing this work in the underground, just with people I know, with some of my contacts, but I'm taking a bigger, bolder step out into the public realm, not just because of the recent legalization of these psychedelics in a therapeutic context, but also because there's been so much in the media lately. You talked about that podcast that you heard with that congressman, and many of our listeners will have heard of those, uh, the famous podcasters, Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss, both of whom are big proponents of how psychedelics can be used in a leadership context. And another one is Aubrey Marcus, who's another uh, writer and leader in that space. And a lot of these people are talking about using psychedelics to help move forward. In fact, Tim Ferriss had a quote recently that I came across that every leader that he knows who is moving into a disruptive space is using psychedelics to help them visualize that disruptive space. That feels like an exaggeration to me. I can't imagine every single leader that Tim Ferriss has ever met is using psychedelics to move into that space. But the fact that he's speaking so confidently with such hyperbole suggests that there's an awful lot of them. Okay. So just to sort of put that into you know, it's only a practical example that our listeners may be able to to uh, sort of recognize or empathize with. Would, would you be um, okay to, to maybe give one example from your own practice where you found that the the use of psychedelics has opened your eyes, so to speak, to to, to a different way of looking at your business? I'm not asking you to uh, do a Prince Harry and sort of just uh, tell everybody everything that's ever happened to you since the age of you know six, but. Uh, um, Something that you found specifically that helped with your you know, leadership practice that you found that you perhaps wouldn't have found if you hadn't had the you know, use of psychedelics. Yeah, Russell, I, uh, I, I'm, I'll tell you this story that I often talk about. I've been, as you know, I've been speaking a little bit more publicly about this. I was speaking at an event back in October, and I told this story then. I was speaking at an event last month. For Creative Mornings, and I'll be speaking again coming up uh, in June at the Avenue Magazine Innovation Event here in Calgary. It'll take place at Platform Calgary on June. Let me look it up before I say anything wrong. It'll be coming up on June, June 14th. And one of the stories that I often tell in this context is something that kind of happened to me. I uh as many of our listeners know, my background is that I didn't spend the first uh, 25 years of my career in the business. I spent the first 25 years as an artist. I was a playwright, theater director. I was a festival programmer. I was an arts administrator. And in that context, I rose to the height of that profession. I was uh, 
uh, the leader of Canada's National Theatre Festival, and I was a much-produced playwright. And then about 10 years ago, I started making the switch into the world of business. I started to notice that there was less and less plays that were um, being produced by straight cisgendered white males. And I started to notice there were less of those opportunities. And so I decided to pivot. And one of the nice things about being a cisgendered, overeducated male is that you, you can you can make that pivot and you can walk into those boardrooms and people will open up those doors for you and make that space for you. Yet, nevertheless, I felt like an outsider. I felt like an imposter. So I was really kind of plagued by that sense of imposter syndrome. On the face of it, I was very confident. I would speak with confidence. I would present myself well. But there was always this kind of underlying tension in myself that maybe I didn't belong in this space. And my clients and my, I think they could read that too. The clients and some of those prospective clients, they could kind of tell that I, I was wearing it like an ill-fitting coat, so to speak. And I, I didn't quite have the confidence. I would second guess myself and I wasn't, um, I, 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 I wouldn't put myself out there. I wasn't a great salesman in that regard. So I was kind of holding something back because of this imposter syndrome. I was lucky enough to be able to go to a retreat down in Mexico with an author and leader in this field named Dr. Gabor Mate. And just by coincidence, you mentioned Prince Harry just the other day. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with that name, Dr. Gabor Mate was the gentleman who interviewed Prince Harry in that um, context and actually kind of held Prince Harry's feet to the fire and asked him a bunch of questions and kind of, kind of analyzed him on air and kind of made Harry uncomfortable with some of the questions he asked. This is what Gabor does. So there I was down in Mexico with Gabor. We would do the we would do this um, this uh, uh, ceremony called ayahuasca, which is a brew that was used by um, the traditional societies down down in South South and Central America. It's a brew, psychedelic brew made from a combination of different plants that are in that that grow in that area in the Amazon basin and all, all the way up into Mexico which induce a psychedelic state, but it's also accompanied by a shamanic ceremony. So there's a lot of spirituality that goes with that. And what Gabor brought to the equation was a therapeutic lens. So we would do the ceremony in the evening and we would spend the next day with Gabor picking apart what was happening and um, what some of our, what was holding us back. And then we'd go back into a second ceremony and then we'd meet with Gabor again in the large group. One of the things that Gabor asked me was, when I talked about this outsider syndrome, moving into the world of business, Gabor asked me, well, was this the first time you have felt like an outsider? And when I reflected on that question, I realized, no, it wasn't. I had gone to a rich kids boarding school north of Toronto, but I wasn't myself from the elite. I was, uh, my parents were farmers. And they were they were very middle class. They were, um, in fact, my both my parents had been had been relatively poor when they were born during the um, uh, Second World War. My father didn't have electricity until he was sixteen. Didn't have a tractor until he was fourteen. Was farming with horses. Didn't have a telephone until he was eighteen. He said that was the worst. He didn't mind not having electricity, but not having a telephone as a young man growing up and uh, trying to engage with the community was it was a very different world than what I grew up in. But And so when I came along, they were able to send me away to this boarding school with some of Canada's elite students, some of Canada's uh, you know, elite kids. And I got to tell you, nobody knows how to bully better than rich kids. So I was immediately an outsider in that environment. Gabor cut me off while I was in the midst of telling my story. And he said, okay, 
thanks for the story, but let's get to the heart of the matter. Was that the first time you felt like an outsider? Well, no, I responded again, right? Like I, I, here I was this artistic soul growing up on a farm with a father who himself had net electricity and he was, you know, his sole way of, of, of socialization back in the fifties was through sports. So he expected me to get into sports. I wasn't a very athletic kid. Again, Gabor cuts me off. Was that the first time that you felt like an outsider? Well, no, actually, the first time maybe that I really felt like an outsider was when my mother, the school teacher, went off to school and I was, uh, I was taken down the road to the neighbor's family where I was put together with those kids to spend the day until my mother came back to get me. So Gabor points out to me from a very early age, like from my very first memories, my subconscious has been programmed to see myself as an outsider. So fast forward now until I'm in my 40s, and no wonder I don't see myself belonging at the head of this boardroom table. So what I was able to do with the assistance of the therapist and of the medicine was I was able to move beyond just understanding that and be able to embody that. That's great. Thank you for sharing that, Ken, um, and, and for sharing something quite personal there about your um, your background and sort of delving into some of the therapy you've done. So you said about embodying it. So what does that actually mean? Because I think people listening can understand the therapeutic part of somebody talking you through that. How does the psychedelics enable you to embody that? Yeah, thanks. And, you know, and I did a lot of training in this area. And the particular training I did is not just with around psychedelics or becoming a psychedelic guide, nor even becoming a therapist. But the work that I did was around somatic relational therapy. And so what that means is the relation between, between the client and the, and the practitioner, but also the relationship between the client and their body. Somatic means being in the body. Soma means body. So here's the way that kind of works. There's, you know, the, the human nervous system has been programmed through years of evolution to look first for threats. So if you try to take us all the way back through the evolutionary tree until we're small hominids hanging out on the savanna and, you know, there's some movement in the grass and our primitive brains, even before the, the cortical regions are developed, the primitive part of our brain is trained to go movement in the grass. Oh, no, it's a lion. Run up the tree. So or, you know, or, or get ready to fight. So it's either that the brain is programmed to go into either a fight or a flight response, right? Either run away or pick up a stick and fight back. And so now let's fast forward. And then, the, sorry, the other thing I should say too is those hominids survive in a tribe, in a group, in a troop, in a pack. So a, any hominid that is, that is excised or, or kicked out of the tribe is on the savannah is going to get eaten by the lion. So we have two things going on in our primitive brains. One is that we're programmed for threat. And the other thing is that social threats are just as real as physical threats. So now let's fast forward through millions of years to, of evolution. We are now in our post-industrial society. We're hanging around in the modern boardroom. And my every one of us still has that primitive part of our brain that is like old programming. It's like, it's like that computer software you have where like they build like version 10 is built on version nine on version eight on version seven. And there's this little flaw in the code way back in version one that causes the whole thing to crash every, you know, once every three days, right. You know, the, the, all those Microsoft products, that's what we got stuck in our hands. So when we're in the, when I'm in the boardroom table and I'm feeling that maybe I don't belong, my brain 
is immediately doing two things. Number one, it says, I'm going to be kicked out of the tribe. And if I am kicked out of the tribe, then that's a life and death situation. So our brains are programmed to go to a threat response first. We're looking for life threat first, and then the subconscious ascertains, okay, my life is not in danger. Is there any other physical danger? And we look at, scan the environment. No, there's no other danger. Only then does the brain decide, I am safe, and I can now proceed with higher cortical uh, functions in my brain. All of this, of course, takes place in milliseconds. But if you think about that, that's how the nervous system functions. And that's separate from the way the brain functions, the upper portion, the higher cortical for, uh, portions of the brain. So the long and the short of it is, you can tell me until the cows come home that I belong here in this boardroom with all of these CEOs, coaching them on how to run their business. But my body doesn't understand that. My nervous system still feels that it is in a social threat and that it's going to be excommunicated or, ex, or um, uh, kicked out of the tribe, and that is a life and death situation. So somehow, you need to move beyond the brain and into that nervous system. And that's what the advent of this psychedelic therapy can do. That's what I discovered in those ayahuasca retreats. I found myself in the jungles in Mexico with Dr. Gabor Mate lying right next to me, and we took the, which I was really appreciative of because this was the first time I'd ever taken such a brew. And I thought to myself, okay, if I have a heart attack and I die, at least I know I've got a doctor sitting next to me. And then they come around with the brew and we all take one, including the doctor. So now I'm like, okay, well, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but so I end up taking the brew and I go through this ceremony. There's lots of visuals, there's lots of pictures, lots of visuals, lots of things going on. Um, there's lots of noise happening. There's lots of chanting, lots of singing. And just as the evening is winding down, I'm thinking to myself, well, that wasn't so bad. I got another ceremony tomorrow night. I'm going to get a little more clear on what my intention is. I want to learn what it's like for me to be confident and comfortable with myself. And I remember lying there on my little yoga mat in this room, uh, outdoor room with 24 other people, thinking to myself, you know what it really is? I need to learn to love myself. In the same way, I need to see myself the same way other people see me. And in that moment, I looked over to the entrance of this open air pavilion where we were sitting. And I saw myself walking in. And I'm not kidding. This is not a joke. This is not a hallucination. This is not, I, I saw like my own physical self walking in, walking across the room and come and sit at the foot of my mat. And this wasn't like in some Hollywood movie where it's some ghostly figure like myself. This wasn't some kind of ectoplasmic shape that was like blue light that was taking place. This was, I was convinced that I saw my own physical self come in and sit down next to me and sit cross-legged as, as close as you and I are sitting. And I saw myself looking in my own eyes, except they were the eyes of myself older, my older self. And I could tell that not because there was wrinkles at the corner of the eyes or gray hair or gray beard or anything like that, but I could see there was a wisdom in the eyes that were looking back at me. And myself said to me, I love you. When all of this is over, when the medicine wears off, when the sun comes up tomorrow, when you go back into that session with Gabor, just remember this one thing. I love you. And then all of a sudden it vanished. Myself vanished. I laid back down and went to sleep. And I woke up uh, at dawn. Everybody else was kind of leaving. And I felt refreshed and renewed. 
And it wasn't a moment that changed overnight, but it was the beginning of a long, slow transformation that led to me being and showing up in a very different way as a leader and showing up in an embodied way as a leader. That's very uh, fascinating, Ken. It's very thought-provoking. I think our um, listeners listening to that will be, you know, can sort of sense that journey and, and picture that in their head. So um, that's fantastic. I think what we're going to do before I do, I want to dig down into some uh, details of what you've been talking about um, after our intermission, but I think we're going to take our break here. Um, take a short intermission for a moment. When we come back from our advert break, I'm going to delve into this in a little bit more depth with Ken. And so we'll be back in a flash. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. One of our clients wants to do the pitch for us. That client is Dean Jessen, who's operations manager at Volker Seven Highways. Dean was a guest on our podcast in episode number 36. And at the end of his interview, he surprised us by telling our listeners just what he thought of our work. Russ and Ken, I appreciate the work your team does. With managing difficult workplace conversations, Volker Steven has had the pleasure of going through that a few times now. And I know some other parts of our companies are also engaging that with yourselves and Blue Gym. And just for the audience's information, we know in a work environment, it goes without saying that there's different views and perspectives out there. Agreements, disagreements, conflicts, etc., are going to take place. And what we've really benefited from, from the work your team does, is that you address these conflicts or disagreements you work with the company you address their specific conflicts and disagreements and you make it a real life setting by bringing actors and mediating and keeping that context going and the discussions going so it prepares our leaders in Volker Steven and others in the leadership role to be ready for these conversations when they do take place so really appreciate the work you gentlemen do as well in your team We had no idea that Dean was going to say that, but we're really glad that he did. For years, Ken and I have been leading these workshops on how to navigate difficult workplace conversations. Because we use live actors to play your difficult employee, customer, supplier, or boss, it's as close to the real thing as you can get without having the real problematic individuals in the office with you. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot psychologically safer. If you'd like to find out more about our live workshops or our online courses, then head on over to INeedTheEffingTalkToYou.com. And now, back to the episode. Welcome back to the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. And today, I'm speaking with my co-host and special guest, Ken Cameron who is uh, not only appearing on the podcast, but he's also with his favorite co-host himself on the podcast. So there we are. That's a great opportunity. Um, Russell, it's a huge pleasure for me to be here. Thanks so much. Love the book. (laughs) Love your work. (laughs) You're you're too kind. You're too kind. Okay, so what I'd like to do, Ken, is is I'd like to um, drill down into some of the terminology that um, you've you've mentioned across from there. Um, Absolutely. But- and, you know, Russell, if there's one thing I kind of want to clarify before we go into this, and it's the, it, because the process that I just described to you is very much on kind of the spiritual end of what happens in this psychedelic leadership. And, you know, I've, I've come to think of it as kind of three different spheres. If you can imagine kind of a Venn diagram where there's three circles kind of overlapping, one of those circles 
I want you to think of as kind of the spiritual end of things, right? This is the, this is the going down to Mexico. This is the shaman. This is the chanting. This is the ayahuasca. Um, this is that kind of spiritual discovery, kind of like what I just described to you. Now, it's, I, I want to also make it clear. Like I didn't see, I didn't see any spirits. I didn't see any, I didn't see any, um, I didn't see God. Right. I had this, I had this kind of encounter with myself, which I perceived as encountering with my own subconscious, but you know, that whole sphere, we can view that as kind of the spiritual end of things. And in that realm, often you see uh, practitioners using like the actual medicine, the plants, the actual mushroom, right? Like the actual, it's much more organic. But if you imagine another circle that overlaps with that, and this is kind of where um, psychedelic therapy has evolved. And this is that circle where there's a therapist, right? And this is where there's there's somebody who's, you're not just with a shaman, you're with a therapist who is bringing something that's the understanding of the psychology behind what you're doing. And this is, um, and this often happens like in a clinical setting. So you're no longer out of the jungles of Peru, you're in your own city. There's a lot of these places opening up across Canada and around the US, around the world. And they tend to be in, you know, much more clean, much more clinical settings. Some of them can be very sterile, which is not my thing. Like, you know, too much like a doctor's office, bright fluorescent lights, I don't like that. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there can be a lot of like, you know, soft fabrics and things like that. But here in this environment, they're often not using, often, not always, not using the, the original organic plants. These are more synthesized medicines like MDMA or uh, 5-MeO-DMT, which are uh, synthesized versions of some of these, some of these, um, these, these substances. And you can imagine in the work that I did with Gabor, that's where these two circles overlap. There was the spiritual element because I was down in Mexico, but there was the therapist present. So it's in that space where these two circles overlap. But there's a third circle that we alluded to earlier. And that's kind of where we find Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan. And these are people who are using these medicines as performance-enhancing tools. So we're not on the spiritual journey with, with Tim Ferriss. We're not, but we're also, um, you know, he, uh, with Joe Rogan, we're not in the, in, in the, in the spiritual, uh, we're not in the therapist journey. It's very much about high performing athletes, high performing business leaders, those kinds of things with Joe Rogan. Tim Ferriss, on the other hand, because of his own personal trauma, he's much more involved in the therapeutic realm. He's where that circle crosses over, the leadership circle crosses over with, the ther- and in fact, he's had Gabor Mate on his podcast as well, right? So the work that I'm doing, I think the really sweet spot is where these three circles intersect. Where you, it's not it's not about therapy, but it's also not about all the spiritual woo-woo, which also kind of turns me off. But it's not also not purely just about like, let's take this medicine and like um, decide that we're going to reinvent our business. There's something in the middle there. And this is that space which leaders are starting to really discover now, this, this notion of embodied leadership, where your whole self is showing up with empathy, with awareness, with um, a critical mind, and, but also with an empathetic mind. And so that's the space that I want to be working in, is where these three circles overlap. And I don't find, I don't find anyone else in the world working in this way. Okay, thanks for that explanation, Ken. I think that really sort of helped um, talk about where you're working specifically in that intersection. Because I think a lot of our listeners, myself included, you know, have come across this in the high performance realm or the you know spiritual realm or the um, 
you know, the therapeutic realm. So the idea that you're at that sort of sweet spot, as you say, with the intersection between the three um, makes sense. What I'd like to just ask you is that with the leaders you've been working with at the moment, with your um, embodied psychedelic leadership, what are you know maybe one or two of the common challenges that they're identifying that the psychedelics can help with? Uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, Russell, I think I can sum it up in in one sentence, and it really is this: you can't read the label from inside the jar. And what embodied leadership helps you do is understand what where you understand what's happening to you, understand what's holding you back and really see it in a new light and then put it into practice. So ultimately what I'm doing that's really unique is I'm bringing leaders together into a four-month cohort. A lot of the work that's out there in the psychedelic leadership space is all one-on-one. So there's a lot of, um, you know, you can fly to Amsterdam, meet the person for the first time on Zoom before you go, meet them in person for the first time on Friday night when you arrive, um, set your intention with them really quickly. And then on Saturday, you do your journey. And then on Sunday, they'll check in with you, make sure you're okay, send you back to, um, back to, back to your home country, and then maybe do a quick follow-up with you on Zoom. But you're essentially on your own on this journey. With the therapist as, as a support, but you're the only one going through it. And I find what tends to happen in those kinds of environments is the ego takes over at the end of the experience and starts to negate the discoveries that you've made. So, you know, oh, I, you know, this is a transformational experience. I can feel, feel really connected to myself. I really feel really connected to others. I see my business in a new way. And then slowly, when you re-enter the real world, your brain starts to think, well, maybe that was just the drugs talking. Maybe, you know, now you're back in the real world and you're falling back into old habits. So we tend to revert very quickly to baseline. And what I'm finding is by working with a cohort of fellow leaders, and I'm really building this on the work that you and I have done with CEO mastermind groups, such as Tech Canada and McKay CEO forums. We've been, you and I, teaching at those groups for not quite a decade, but pretty close, like like seven, eight years. And we've really observed the power of a group of high-performing leaders reinforcing one another, supporting one another, challenging one another. So I'm bringing that into these meeting spaces where we meet once a month without medicine. We do our retreat over the course of three days, as I've outlined, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, um, you know, Friday night, all day, Saturday, Sunday morning, and then um, to really set the intention. But then the cohort reconvenes again. And you're so you're together with leaders that you've been vulnerable with, and they're there to help hold you accountable to this new change that you've set for yourself. They're not forcing anything on you. I'm not forcing anything on the participant, but you've got the opportunity to say, you know, this was a new transformation and I'm doing this thing and this is how I, what I'm going to be doing next. And then a month later, you meet with those people and you say, yeah, I'm having this problem with blah, blah, blah. And your, your um, fellow cohort members can say, and didn't you just tell us last month that you were going to be atta- approaching that differently? What happened? How can we support you? How can we, how can we help you reinforce that new pattern that you want to be moving towards? And then at the end of those four months, of course, the person has the opportunity to off-ramp or to re-engage with another cycle of four, of four months. So we, we, we have really found that the cohort really, really makes it work because they help you get outside of the jar that you're in so that you can read the label. So much so that we found on the, we had our cohort meeting together several times 
And then on the first night of the, of the retreat, again, remember, this is without medicine. So it's Friday night. We're sitting together in the retreat room with myself and my, and my co-facilitator. And the, each one of these four male participants start, uh, had, uh, uh, had some tears had some real vulnerable sharing moment that caused them to cry in front of other, their fellow leaders. And, you know, halfway through that night, each of these participants were like, I don't even know if we need the medicine tomorrow. I mean, I'm still going to do it, but I don't know if we, if we stopped right here, this would still be a valuable discovery. So we know that it's the cohort that really supercharges the whole experience. And, and that totally makes sense, Ken, because... Um, you know, from our previous work, as you say, where we've done work with people like the McKay Group or, or um, you know, Tech Canada, um, also the work we've done in the past with action learning sets, and 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 we've had clients, haven't we, where we've had a, you know, a cohort work through over a period of time, and that continually coming back and revisiting, uh, holding each other accountable to what we're going to do, um, but also that part of being able to. Um, I suppose bolster people where they, when sometimes you start to doubt yourself. So I think you know it has the t- it holds people accountable when they start to slip, but also sometimes you know that negative self talk comes in and oh perhaps I'm not really as good as I thought I was and who am I to say that I could do this? That allows you to within the peer group to be able to support each other. So I can certainly see that. Are working really well um, with you know as you someone said even without before you even get to the psychedelics part just by that that support group and then what the psychedelics do in that context is if you'll pardon the mixing of metaphors it's it's like it's like a it's like that mastermind group on steroids because what the psychedelics do is three things number one is they the 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 altered percep the altered perception so you're able to see yourself outside of the outside of the jar as i described the second thing they do is they disrupt your established thought patterns so you can break free from habitual thinking and explore new connections and then the third thing that psychedelics are proven to do is to increase neural connectivity so in addition to getting you a, a fresh perspective, in addition to, to getting you to, to um, uh, 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 break free of your old habits, w- once you've done those two things, the psychedelics help to establish new connections in your brain to reinforce those. But as we've learned from, ne- from neuroscience, you know, once you've established a new connection, it's just a weak connection. And just like with any habit, you reinforce the, that neural connection by repeating that, that, that habit. This is why mantras work so well or why those positive affirmations work so well, because you establish a neural connection and then you return to it, you know, two or three times a day or whatever. And this is where the cohort is really handy and where the one-on-one coaching I do with each participant between cohort meetings really comes in handy because it reinforces those new neural pathways that have been built during, during the whole process. Okay, that, totally, that totally makes sense. It's not dissimilar to uh, uh, some of the work you do with neuro linguistic programming, which again has these you know new ways of thinking and then working on it. And of course, a lot of the NLP work came out from psychedelics itself. So that's not a you know there's back a link in there again for those people that are thinking is this brand new? Well, it isn't. It isn't because it's been around for you know thousands of years in one one level, but also it's been around in, in the business sense for for longer since at least the sixties. And you know, when you say it goes back thousands of years, it really does. There are records of these mysterious um, 
rituals that took place in ancient Athens going way back to like, so that would be like 800 BC, these, the Eleusian mysteries, they called them, but which, which we now, which we now realize was, um, the, um, in the temple, they would take, uh, um, um, vegetables that were infected with the ergot fungus, which is a precursor to LSD. And then they would get into these altered states. But what's also really, really interesting is that those altered states were really well protected by the priests to the point where everyone was um, was sworn to secrecy. So that when the later when the Greek Empire fell and the Roman Empire came along and then later Christianity, those mysteries were lost. So we think of these psychedelics as being something that the, the tribes out in the Amazon do. Or that the tribes in the African in Africa do with iboga, or it's something that others do, right? But they have been integral to Western civilization for hundreds of years until they were cut off and stopped. And what's really interesting now is that it's moving beyond the realm of the underground and becoming above ground and accessible to everybody. Okay, absolutely. So one thing I'd like to just check in with you here, Ken. Um, just lost a couple of things, perhaps before we we close on our conversation. Um, now, some of our listeners will be listening here and saying, this sounds fascinating, the idea of being able to sort of, you know, supercharge what you're doing um, as a leader, being able to find in sort of, you know, new new ways of, of, of working, improvements, um, you know, the negative self-doubt that's been there in the past to push that, you know, maybe to move that, get beyond that. But what happens, uh, what have you got on offer for people who want to achieve these results but either aren't ready to use psychedelics or don't want to use psychedelics, perhaps a little bit nervous about it. Um, what have you got to offer them? You know, I was encouraged by the participants who've been engaged in the, in the psychedelic, embodied psychedelic therapy, to, to launch a separate non-psychedelic stream, which we're now calling embodied leadership. So it's an embodied leadership cohort. If you remember back in my earlier story, when I talked about that, that first evening before we started the, the medicine, where the participants were like, you know, oh my God, the work has been so powerful up to this point. I don't even know if we need the medicine. And so based on that and the encouragement from the participants that night and, and um, afterwards, right through to the end of, of, of that journey, we're really launching the, um, the embodied leadership program, which will include a lot of the techniques that, we've, that we use to kind of set the stage and hold one another accountable. And what's really interesting, Russell, is that a lot of those techniques are the same ones that you and I use in a lot of our other workshops. The shift card deck, a lot of the worksheets that we use, um, you know, the so a lot and a lot of the things that are that are held forth in the coaching sections in the I need to effing talk to you book that you and I co-wrote together. So uh, this this is again that middle space where 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 it's not just about the woo woo and it's not just about the therapy; it's about leadership. And so the, in this in the in in the embodied leadership form, we're moving further into that the that one sphere away from the medicine elements of the other spheres. Okay, that sounds cool because I could certainly see people who would be interested in exploring that and maybe would want to, you know, slowly get involved with the psychedelic side or not do that at all. If people started off with the, say, the embodied leadership and then they wanted to maybe dip their toe in the water of psychedelics, do you you do anything around there where people could maybe just sort of try it out on a small scale to see how it worked for them um, and then they could decide to do more of it or just sort of keep it as it is? What, what do you offer there? 
Yeah. The, you know, one of the, um, uh, standard protocols in psychedelic, uh, therapy, and this is a way to tell whether you're working with a trained psychedelic therapist or someone who's just done a lot of drugs and wants to be a, a guide is that a trained psychedelic leadership will never take you into a retreat without a lot of work in advance. So the, the teams that I work with and the, the, the therapists that I am asked to be an assistant to on some of those journeys will have often worked with a client a minimum of three months, often more like six months, meeting regularly once a month before they get into any kind of psychedelic retreat. And so I'm applying the same principles. We're not going to rush into anything here, right? I'm not going to rush into any of this. This is why the even the embodied psychedelic path has multiple months of the cohort meeting before you get into it. But there are also people who are might want to explore some of this, but either I can't make those monthly meetings because they conflict with my travel schedule for work, or I'm just not sure I want to be that vulnerable in a group, right? So with those individuals, I'm, I'm um, working one-on-one. So there's a combination of one-on-one coaching with what a lot of your listeners might have heard of, which is called microdosing. So this is where somebody takes a um, sub-perceptual dose of a psychedelic. So just enough that you don't even, you hardly even notice it. So you might just, so you might think of it as one-tenth of an active dose, right? Somewhere between one-tenth and one-quarter of an active dose. And I had my first experience with this kind of relatively recently. It was only about maybe like six years ago, I think, when um, my, my wife and I were going to the cabin. We were going to be working on something. And we thought, well, let's try this out. Let's do it at the cabin where we're not going to, you know, <laughs> we want to embarrass ourselves. And, you know, we'll do it at the cabin on a, on a day where we don't have any other obligations. So if we're, the worst thing that can happen is we don't get the work done that day on this project that we wanted to do. I was working on, um, I think I was working on, on, on a book actually. And um, so we sat down, we took um, a little bit of LSD. Uh, as I say about, it was between one-tenth and one-quarter of a dose. And then I, I think it was a one-quarter of a dose. And we were, I was working. We did that at around like you know 11 o'clock. And then at around like four o'clock, I turned to my wife and I said, I don't think it's working. I don't really feel anything. And she said to me, maybe, but you just worked for five hours on your novel without a break. So I think it's kind of working. So it's true. It was improved focus. It was improved imagination. It was um, improved articulation and, um, and, and, and improved energy. So it was all kind of all four of those things at once. But without me being in any way incapacitated, like I said, I wasn't even sure I was feeling anything until I looked at the outcomes, right? Or the outputs, I guess. So where this is really helpful, I think, is you can get a lot of one-on-one coaching with, you know, with, with performance coaches, with life coach, with business coaches. And I think what we're looking at here is one-on-one embodied coaching in which the microdosing can be an adjunct. And I think that's maybe the key message I want to kind of leave our listeners with is that in, in all three of these contexts that I've spoken about, The medicine is not the key player. The medicine is the adjunct. The medicine is the tool that opens up this box of other tools that you can access. I myself am really, really leery of any therapist or um, leadership coach who looks to a psychedelic as some kind of silver bullet or, or magic potion. Because it really isn't. It's really uh, all that the psychedelic does is give you more work to do. It just points you in the direction and opens a door or a bunch of doors for you. So you, but then you have to do the work of choosing to go through those doors. 
And that's, I think, where the accountability piece, either in the cohort-based or in the one-on-one work, really is valuable. Yeah, that, that's great. And thank you so much for clarifying that, game because I think that will really have helped our, our listeners. And if I can just sort of, you know, how, I, how I'm hearing it from, from you, that, you know, the series of, you know, the... The, the, I suppose I'll choose the phrase, you know, the modules that you're working people through and the coaching and the topics that you're covering with them as part of that um, embodied leadership program is there. That That's just the solid foundation that you have and that the psychedelic, whether it's um, microdosing or whether it's the, you know, the full um, experience only comes partway through there and is a, is an add-on to that that may further enhance what you're doing, but it's not just the, hey, take this and guess what? This something miraculous will happen. So um, I, I think that's important to to be clear, if I've understood that correctly, um, that it's that sort of an enhancement not being, you know, that's the foundation of it all and th- there isn't anything else beyond that, just an experience that you might have. Yeah, I think that's really super accurate, Russell. And I think, you know, the, uh, I, I think really the, the, the really useful piece for me is recognizing that it's the, you know, this is based on the, on the, the 10 years of work that I've done as um, a leadership coach, a lot of which I've done with you, a lot of which I've done with others. And I have a lot of other colleagues that have really kind of informed my work. And I, we bring all of that to the table. Yeah, and I certainly see, you know, on the both on that that leadership work, I've joined you for part of that journey, and I've been, you know, you've fed in stuff that you've done with others, and I think on the, you know, the psychedelic side, it's it's something that you've been working on for a similar amount of time. So it's not something you just woke up yesterday and thought, hey, I think I'm going to do this. This sounds pretty cool. You know, it's it, it's been a, you know, at least probably a decade long journey on both of those sides to to bring you to that point. This has been great, Ken. Thank you so much for allowing me to interview you about the work that you're doing. Um, I'm going to give you the same opportunity we give all of our guests is that before we finish, um, what are you currently working on that you'd like people to know about? Um, Particularly maybe there's a, uh, you mentioned a talk earlier on that you're doing in a week or so's time. So perhaps you want to just remind people of what that's all about. Yeah, thanks, Russell. I've been really privileged to have been asked by Avenue Magazine here in Calgary to speak at their annual Avenue Innovation event, which is tied to their annual innovation uh, uh, edition of their magazine, which came out earlier this month. And the event itself takes place at Platform Calgary on June 14th. It's in the afternoon. From I think it starts at, uh, I think you gather at 12, doors at 12, starts at 1 kind of thing, and goes through until 7 o'clock. I am obviously not holding court on the stage for those entire six hours, uh, although our listeners will, uh, by this point, will realize I probably could, but because uh, I never seem to shut up. But I'll, I'm on, I think, I, I think I'm on at like 3 or 3.30, but in, and then I'll just be kind of hanging around the, the event and, and meeting with people, which promises to be like an exciting super event. I also have a discount code. So I think it's a 10 or 15% off discount code that we can offer to people if they email us at the email address in the show notes. That's fantastic. Thanks, Ken. We'll put the link to that um, event on the 14th of June in our show notes to sort of people who are interested can uh, get in, get in contact with you to get the discount code. Um, so thank you so much again for being um, both 
co-host and special guest on this episode. And Russell, I promise I want to, I'm going to threaten to turn the tables on you. And I want to interview you about some of the work that you've been doing at the Calgary Remand Center. So I want to do that in an upcoming episode. So our listeners should pay attention to the excellent work that you've been doing with souls who really need it. Yeah, that, that would be great, Ken. I, I would enjoy having the tables turned on me and to be the special guest on that occasion. So perhaps, again, folks, keep your eyes open. That will be coming up on a future episode. So that wraps up our episode um, today. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, share the link with your friends and colleagues, and you can always reach out to us at the email address in the show notes. Goodbye for now, and we'll effing talk to you soon.